We're going to read from Matthew 2, verse 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hildy, for leading us in prayer. You made it, and it was heartfelt and powerful, and we appreciate it very much. Thanks for reading as well. Um, we are at the end of Matthew chapter 2, which is the, the, the end of Matthew's telling of the early years of Jesus, his birth, and the first couple years of his life. And when you get to these verses, beginning in verse 13 down through verse uh, 23, what immediately jumps out at you is how in just 10 very short verses, uh, we get three prophecies. Three prophecies are fulfilled in this short story. First of all, there's, there's verse 14. It says, So when he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's actually a quote from uh, Hosea chapter 11, where Hosea is looking back on the Exodus. That's when the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt for some 400 years were actually taken out of Egypt by a mighty miraculous work of God. But Matthew is applying these words not just to those times, but also to the time where Jesus was brought out of Egypt at the appropriate time, once Herod's uh, maniacal uh, bloodlust had finally been satisfied and he was no longer in the picture and it was safe 
for Jesus' family to return uh, from their little exile time in history in, in Egypt. And what Matthew is trying to show us with this is that, that the coming of Jesus is actually the climax of biblical history. All that happened to Israel up until, until this point pointed to Jesus' coming. And that's what we've been going back to and emphasizing again and again as we've been looking through Matthew because he's trying to convince these Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that they've all been waiting for for so long. Then in verse 17, you get this, this, this sad, mournful prophecy about, uh, from the prophet Jeremiah. A voice, this is beginning of verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And, and what Matthew is, is pointing to is a place in Jeremiah where, where Jeremiah is talking about, he's taking uh, Rachel, who actually died in childbirth, at Ramah, she was giving birth to Isaac, and she died in that process, and uh, died, sorry, died at Ramah. No, not Isaac. Who was it? Benjamin. There we go. Duh. Thanks, Jess. The theologian in the house. Um, but, you know, she reads her Bible every year, right? So, uh, you know, she knows, what she, she knows what's what. Anyhow, so Benjamin dies, uh, or Rachel dies, uh, while giving birth to Benjamin at Ramah, and, and Jeremiah uses that story as a symbol of the Judean, the Judean Christ, uh, Israelites from Judah being, um, being exiled to Babylon. And they have to actually travel through Ramah as they're being taken by the Babylonians into captivity. But Matthew not only looks at that and says, yeah, that's what that's about, but he says Jeremiah was actually talking about this event where Herod has all the boys in Bethlehem, ages two years old and younger, uh, killed in order to protect his kingdom. And then, of course, in verse 23, it says, uh, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, actually... That's not a direct quote from any Old Testament passage, but it's a theme in the Old Testament that this coming Messiah was not going to be this great warrior king that all the people would recognize and they'd put him on the war horse and he would be loved and cherished and, and uh, adored by the people. No, he was going to be despised. He was going to be rejected. The people were going to uh, refuse him. In fact, the little town of Nazareth isn't even mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It was this piddly little hick town. And, and you may remember, uh, some of you, that when uh, uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, hey, I think I found the Messiah. And he says, oh yeah, who? Well, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And, Naz and Nathaniel stops and he goes, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The point being that Jesus was prophesied to be a rejected Messiah, a humble Messiah. A Messiah that the people didn't expect. And so Matthew includes these prophecies in this passage to, to point out to the Jews that this is precisely the one that the Old Testament had been giving signs about over and over again. And he, Matthew, is saying, I'm just connecting the dots for you so that you can understand that the whole Old Testament has been pointing forward to the coming of this Jesus as the Messiah that you have long waited for. Now, what I want to do this morning, as we look at this passage, is I want to 
show you two things that this passage teaches us and make a couple of applications to both. The first thing I'd like us to see is that opposition to Christ's kingship is always present. And secondly, that opposition to Christ's kingship, though it's always present, is also always futile. And then we'll make a couple of applications around that. Opposition to Christ's kingship is always present, and opposition to Christ's kingship is always futile. So here we go. First of all, opposition to Christ's kingship is always present. You know, you got to feel for Joseph. This poor guy, ever since he marries Mary, it's like he's never going to get a good night's sleep again. Because he keeps getting interrupted by these angels. Who are, who are waking him up in the middle of the night with these messages for him. And in verse 15, we read that once again, poor Joseph is sleeping. And it says, he, uh, sorry, not verse 15, verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So he's sleeping and he says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to, Jer to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, this must have been an incredible surprise to Joseph, because think about this. He has been told that he is going to be the father, not the, not the biological father, but the, the uh, legal father of the Son of God, of Emmanuel, God with us. He is going to care for the king of the universe as this king grows up in his house. And he has seen the power of of this king and his kingdom because these angels keep appearing to him and if you know anything about angels you know that they are majestic glorious supernatural beings and if you were ever to be confronted with one you would freak out by the power too and he knows that this Jesus is obviously going to be very important because he was there when the Magi showed up and they gave these very expensive gifts and yet Despite the fact that this king and his kingdom is going to be powerful, and he is obviously a, clearly a very important person, despite that, Joseph is on the run. He's told to get up, grab the kid. The, the creator of the universe is dependent upon you for his safety. His life is under threat, and you need to run to, in the middle of the night, to Egypt. Don't pack! There are evil forces arrayed against the king, and it is dependent upon you to protect his life and get out of here. Now, that must have been a shock to him. You know, don't you know? We all know that the most protected person on the planet is the president of the United States. He doesn't go anywhere without a major security detail around him all the time. Maybe the Pope is up there too. He's got that Swiss guard. But here is the king of the universe dependent upon his father Joseph to be uh, protected. You would think he had nothing to fear, but in fact, he has everything to fear. And yet, Joseph does flee. Now, this is what this teaches us. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, The shadow of the cross falls over the story of Jesus from this moment on. Jesus was born with a price on his head. And Joseph is caught up into this conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And here's the point. We are all caught up into this conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Understand something. 
if you are considering the claims of Jesus as the king of the universe, as God in the flesh, as the one who came into this world to live the perfectly obedient life that you were expected to live but couldn't, and then die that substitutionary death on the cross that you deserve to die so that if you put your trust in him, you will be saved from the righteous judgment of God on your sinful life. If you're considering that and you're wondering, should I put my trust in this Jesus? No this to be a follower of Jesus does not mean that you will not have trouble in your life a lot of people think that a lot of people think that if they become a follower of Jesus well then their troubles will be taken care of you know they'll have power to overcome their addictions they'll be able to live in healthy relationships some people even believe that it means that they will find prosperity in this world and you know what That might happen. But in all likelihood, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will have more trouble in this world rather than less. Because you see, Jesus is not just an earthly king. He is a cosmic king. And there is a cosmic battle between good and evil, and all people are involved, regardless of their race or their gender or their beliefs, or, or uh, their, their socioeconomic status, it does not matter because as we've seen over and over again, the coming of Jesus requires a response. You can either receive him as your Lord and Savior or you reject him. And so you and I are thrust into this battle between good and evil, between the goodness of Christ and his kingdom and the evil of Satan and his kingdom. And we are all participants in it, whether we want to be or not. The book of Revelation uh, is a weird book. I, I know. If you've ever tried to read it, you know you're... You're wondering if I hold it upside down, maybe I'm supposed to read it from the mirror or something. Is there some weird way I'm supposed to read this to understand and unlock it? I know it's a strange book. It's full of all kinds of symbols and imagery, etc. And one of the places that is quite fascinating is from Revelation chapter 12, which is actually a picture of Christmas from a very different perspective. You and I see the Christmas story from the perspective of people here on earth. But here's the perspective of Christmas from heaven, from the spiritual realm. Listen to Revelation chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brother... Nope, that's Romans. How did I end up in there? Uh, Where are we? Revelation chapter 12. This is verses 1 through 4. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child who will rule, sorry, the moment he was born. Imagine seeing that on your Christmas card, eh? Well, this is a picture of all of redemptive history from the beginning of time until this moment of Christ's entrance into the world. 
Because you see, in Genesis chapter 3, God said after Adam and Eve disobeyed him and they fell and rebelled against him and they, they fell and they were, they were separated from God, God didn't leave humanity in its sinfulness and in its rebellion so that it could die and rot. No, he decided that he was going to rescue them and he made a prophecy and he said that there would be an ongoing battle between the woman and the dragon, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent who is Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And here Satan is attempting to thwart God's plan to redeem his people. That's what's happening right here. But how is he doing it? He's doing it through Herod. Now, I talked a little bit about Herod, I think, last time, about how bad he was. But let me, let me remind you just about how bad he was. So when Herod became king, he had the entire Sanhedrin at that time murdered and replaced with his peeps. He killed at one point in his reign, he killed his wife, his wife's mother, his grandmother. He killed two of his sons. No, he killed three of his sons. It was so bad that actually Caesar Augustus said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's child. And he also had instructed the people, uh, his, his, uh, his inner circle and his advisors, he had instructed them that when he dies, he wanted one person from every family in Jerusalem killed in order to make sure that, that the city was in deep and profound mourning for him. Thankfully, they did not carry that out when he died, but this is what he wanted. This guy was a monster, right? But here he is as an instrument of Satan, trying to thwart the promised uh, plan of God to redeem his people. He asked the Magi, where is this Jesus going to be found? Okay, you're going to go look for him. When you find him, come and tell me so that I can go and I can worship this great king of the Jews as well. But all he really wanted to do was kill him. And yet God protects his son. He sends an angel to Joseph and he tells Joseph, you've got to flee to Egypt. Joseph gets up in the middle of the night. He takes his family and off to Egypt he goes. Listen, friends, the spiritual realm, that picture that Revelation 12 gives you of the spiritual realm behind the physical world that you and I can access with our five senses, that world is real and you are part of it. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are a spiritual being and you participate in the spiritual realm and this cosmic battle between good and evil. You are there. And your enemy, if you're a believer, Peter says, Satan, your enemy, is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Now, you might say to yourself, I don't, I don't see any of this of what you're talking about, Paul. I don't see this spiritual realm. I don't, I don't see these, these spiritual forces, I don't know, demons and angels and all that kind of stuff happening. But you see, you've been conditioned not to see it. You live in a modern Western culture where our idea of the spiritual realm and, and the demonic and the devil and all that kind of stuff comes from things like the exorcist. Where Satan and his evil is like front and center, man. You can see it and it's really, really scary and it's really, really obvious. But friends, that's not how the devil works. Most often the devil works very subtly and he works through people. Notice how he works through Herod. 
How did Herod become this terrible monster who was so wicked and so self-absorbed and so malicious? Do you think, do you think he grew up and, and the other kids were like, oh man, don't, don't hang out with Herod. That guy's got a mean streak. You know, you ever see it? Sometimes I've, I've seen him torture animals. He's a bad dude. What was his problem? Was he just the weird kid who didn't have any friends and so he became more and more angry and more and more hostile? He, maybe, but he was probably just a regular guy who when he finally got into power, he allowed his lust for power to overcome him and allowed the devil to use that lust for power to, to accomplish his wicked schemes. In other words, here is Herod allowing his sinful desires to cooperate with the supernatural power of evil that exists in the world to do heinous, terrible things. He cooperated. And you might think to yourself, well, that, that's not how I operate. I mean, I, I don't, is that how I operate? We don't, I don't cooperate with the devil. I don't want anything to do with the devil. Okay? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold interesting you getting angry not being able to control your emotions is a way of giving the devil a foothold in first timothy chapter 3 when paul is uh, describing who you ought to consider for leadership in the church he says you know don't give leadership positions to a new christian because they might become conceited and fall into the trap of the devil Conceit, being puffed up, being proud, is a trap of the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of the Hebrews says that basically as long as you fear death, you are under the power of the devil. That the fear of death, which is a natural instinct that all human beings live with, is actually one of the sources or one of the places where Satan wields his power. You see, the devil, this supernatural being, he is very, very smart, smarter than you and me, and he is profoundly subtle. But the battle rages all around us. Which is why in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we don't see it. Not because we're reformed Christians and we're not into spiritual warfare and we don't, we don't, we don't dig kind of the charismatic world. No, that's not why. It's because we're modern people who have largely gotten rid of, in their worldview, this idea that there even is a spiritual realm with forces of good and forces of evil at war, and we are participants in that war. And you know what? That's precisely how the devil wants it. We've been duped. We've been sucked in. You know, uh, there's a movie. It's an old movie now because all the movies I like are old, apparently. Um, there's a movie called uh, The Usual Suspects. And, and 
Kevin Spacey plays this character in The Usual Suspects, and, and, and in an interview, he's talking about this shadowy figure called Kaiser Soze, who is like this mob boss kind of figure. And this is what, what Spacey says. He says, you know, nobody ever believed that he was real. Nobody ever knew him or saw anybody that ever worked directly for him. But to hear Kobayashi tell it, this is another character, anybody could have worked for Soze. You never knew. That was his power. And then he says this, the greatest trick, of the dev the, greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. That's our world right now, friends. A world that is largely convinced that the devil doesn't exist. And if he does, he's just a character in red tights with a little pitchfork and some horns that you can buy at, uh, what's that store? Value Village during uh, Easter, or not Easter, <laughs> during Halloween. <laughs> during Halloween, and you can wear, you can be him at your Halloween party. But friends, make no mistake, the Bible says that the forces of evil are real. That the devil is the prince of darkness and that we are caught up into this, this battle. You are either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. There is no Switzerland. There is no neutral country here. You are either with Jesus or you are with the forces that oppose Jesus. There is no middle ground. And Herod clearly was part of that battle, and he had chosen the forces of darkness. And you got to understand, this is true regardless of whether you believe it or not. Oftentimes, people will say, well, you may believe that, and that's fine for you, but that's not fine for me. This isn't, this isn't an opinion. This isn't like me saying, you know, Man City is the best soccer team in the world. And you saying, no, 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 Arsenal is the best soccer team in the world. This is not an opinion that can be debated. This is a fact that is true. This is like the sky is blue. And despite all your, your uh, beliefs about it being purple, it truly is blue. Whether we believe it or not is irrelevant to the truth of the statement. And, and my job, and, and Hildy prayed for this, that I would preach truthfully and honestly and powerfully. And so I'm doing with every ounce of energy I have in me to convince you that this world exists. This spiritual world, the forces of good and evil, that you are a part of it. That it is not just a random universe that you are bouncing through like all the other cosmic atoms that have been collated over time plus chance plus matter no there is a story being written right now in which God is destroying evil and you are a participant in that story now which side do you want to participate on what a great New Year's Eve Sunday service this is isn't it well hopefully it is by the end of this sermon <laughs> the hope you ask. All right. I'm glad you asked it. So opposition is always present. Yes. But what this text shows us is that opposition to the kingdom of God is also always futile. That's what this text shows us. God wins. 
Three prophecies are fulfilled here. Proving what? Proving that God is absolutely sovereign. That there is nothing in this universe that is happening at any point in time that surprises him in the least. That catches him off guard and makes him go, oh, I didn't see that coming. I've got to readjust my plan. I've got to pivot. God never has to pivot. In fact, everything that is happening is actually part of the plan that he is unfolding. Even the suffering of his own son. His humble birth, his having to flee hitmen while a toddler. And all the other later attempts on his life too. You read through the Gospels and you see time and time again that there are people out to get him, out to derail him, out to destroy him, and out ultimately to kill him. And none of these attempts work until they do. None of these attempts work until they do. But why do they? Jesus tells us why. John chapter 10, verse 18. Nobody, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Only to take it up again. In other words... The devil and his minions rage against the sovereign king. He plots his crucifixion. He finally gets Jesus in his clutches so that he is tried and he is convicted and then nailed to that piece of wood. And the devil says, aha, finally, on this cross, I have defeated God because Jesus, his son, is being killed by God and cursed for dying on a tree. This is my greatest moment of victory. And there he stands grinning because he thought he won. But in the greatest twist, plot twist of all stories in history, friends, he lost. Because through losing, Jesus won. Through giving himself as a sacrifice for our sin, Jesus won victory over the forces of darkness. This is the great story of the Bible. That while you and I were walking in darkness and and living as, as sons of disobedience, Jesus came into this world and he showed us God's love. He said, this is what God is like. You want to know what he's like? Look at me. I am so gentle and humble in heart. And if you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. And we said, no. We don't want you and we don't like you. We don't like you pointing out our sin. We don't like the light of your righteousness and holiness shining into the darkness of our sin. We don't like how you are judging the world. We don't like how you, how you call us to live in holiness and righteousness. We don't care that you care for the poor and that you are kind and gentle to the hurting, that you would never blow out a smoldering wick, that you would never break a bruised reed. We don't care because you've told us we're wrong and you can't tell us we're wrong. And so we grabbed him and we nailed him to that piece of wood and we mocked him and we spat at him and we laughed at him and we told him come on save yourself you saved others why don't you save yourself and he took it and he took it and he took it and hell laughed all the way to his death till he was put in that grave and and gleefully satan thought he had finally won and all the while he was just another pawn in his own in God's own plan to defeat evil from the inside 
If you're familiar with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that beautiful allegory of the Christian story, you'll remember that the, the white witch had, had Aslan killed on the table. And as he lay there dead, they threw a great party. The white witch and all her wicked friends, they threw this great party of victory, but they never saw it coming. They never saw that through that death that the witch's power would finally be defeated. And there was poor Susan and poor Lucy weeping on the table. And then the king, the king shows up. The lion, Aslan, shows up and he roars with power and they're, they're, they're shocked. They saw him die, but here he is standing and alive and they don't understand it. How did this happen? And he says, this means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. You and I live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. So we know the outcome of the story. We know the end of the story. We know that death is not the end. That the devil has been defeated despite what he thinks. No matter what it looks like on the surface. No matter what you face right now in your life. No matter how dire. No matter how hopeless. No matter how bleak. No, how, no matter how utterly dark and despairing it looks like on the surface. This, you know, if you are in Jesus Christ, this is not the end of the story. It is not the end of your story. And it's not the end of the world's story. There's lots of reasons to be pessimistic about the world right now. Fights, floods, famines, fires. And there's lots to be pessimistic. Culture wars that are dividing people in a way that we, we haven't seen for generations in our country. Everybody just seems angry all the time. And I've spoken with some of you and I've felt it myself. It feels like in our world right now there is a pall that has, has spread across our culture. There is a, a darkness that's been settling upon us. There is a, there is a, a joylessness. There is a, a misery that people are walking around with that is, that is unarticulated, but it is felt deeply within them. And we could say this world just seems so bleak, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that as bleak as it seems right now, as dark as it is right now, that is when the light shines brightest in the middle of the dark. Because the story does not end with bleakness and darkness. Let me read to you how the story ends. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elder and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, listen, this is you. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from there. Eyes. That's where we're going. And in the darkest moments of your suffering, today, tomorrow, throughout 2024, never ever forget. That's not the end of the story. That story's been written. And it ends with your unfettered joy in the presence of your king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that despite the fact that opposition to your kingdom is ever-present in this world. Sometimes it rises up in our own hearts. Sometimes it rises up around us. And sometimes it can cause us to, to feel like we would despair. Oh, God Almighty, we thank you that opposition to your kingdom is always futile. We thank you that we know the end of the story. That beautiful picture in Revelation 7, Father, we confess, we, we want it now. So come, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, may we face the coming year with hope, with, with a hope that no suffering can take away, with a joy that no hardships could take away. A hope that is founded upon the work of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.